You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Ezra chapter 8, verses 15 through 20. As I gathered them to the river that runs to Ahava, and there we camped three days. As I reviewed the people and the priests, I found there none of the sons of Levi. Then I sent for Eliezer, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elnathan, Jerib, Elnathan, Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshalim, leading men. And for Joyarib and Elnathan, who were men of insight, and sent them to Iddo, the leading man at the place Casiphia telling them what to say to Iddo and his brothers and the temple servants at the place Casiphia, namely, to send us ministers for the house of our God. And by the good hand of our God on us, they brought us a man of discretion, of the sons of Mali, the son of Levi, son of Israel, named, namely, Sherebiah, with his sons and kinsmen, 18, also Hashabiah, and with him, Jeshiah, of the sons of Merari, with his kinsmen and their sons, 20. Besides, 220 of the temple servants, whom David and his officials had set apart to attend the Levites. These were all mentioned by name. So this is the word of God to us this morning. To pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. And thank you so much for the privilege to uh, be together this morning to worship you and to study your word together, to hear it proclaimed. Lord, I pray that you would come and, and speak to us, um, speak to the various different hidden places of our hearts and minds this morning, places where our hearts are broken, and places where our hearts are um, in rebellion, places where our hearts are hard. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would come and do a, a mending work, um, a softening work through your word. Um, Father, that you would call us to yourself. And that you would magnify in front of us, Father, the power of the cross of Jesus and the empty tomb. Rest our hearts once again in the hope of eternity that we have in you. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. This text that I uh, just read... Um, Pretty basic and simple, it just describes a shortage of leadership on Ezra's ministry team. It also describes God's work in providing the leaders that are actually needed to get the job done. What was that job? The job description that we've studied previously was basically to reform a community of the Word, to beautify this newly rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. As we studied last week, previous text, Ezra had already sat down with the heads of the 12 families in Babylon. He had uh, recruited roughly 1,500 leading men um, to take this thousand-mile journey from uh, Babylon to Jerusalem to then execute that vision, that mission, along with God's provision. Um, and before embarking on that 1,000-mile journey, um, Ezra gathers his team. 
right? He gathers his team on the banks of this river, the text tells us, um, I think simply to plan and to prepare, to organize uh, for the journey ahead, for the mission ahead. It's always good to make plans and to organize and to review and to make sure you haven't forgotten something before you take off on a trip. Our family takes an annual vacation out to the Black Hills, a beautiful area to get away to. And uh, we could probably, I could probably share stories today of the times that we left the house in a hurry and forgot some really important things. Um, I can say that there is an old story that goes around, um, our kids tell quite often, of a youth trip that we took when I was a youth pastor at another church that we helped to plant. And uh, we left that youth conference in such a hurry trying to get home with our four carloads of kids and youth that we had taken that we failed to review the list of kids in each car. Halfway home, I got a call from the state youth director of that denomination. He said, Joe, did you have a good time? Yeah, it was great, man. Kids were getting after Jesus, and we got some saved, and some want to go to missions, and yada, 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 yada. He goes, oh, good. No, glad you had a good time. I was glad to have you here. Um, did you forget something? All right, I got my phone, got my computer, you know, looking around. And well, I got this kid here, her name's Harley. <laughs> you know, it reminds me of that story when Jesus, you know, they find that Jesus has been missing after two days. You always wonder, you know, how, how, uh, how and why. Um, did Jesus' parents not notice? <laughs> why did it take them two days? Uh, my snarky little mind uh, was like, well, at least I didn't find out two days later, like Jesus' parents. Um, it's always good to uh, review, pause, plan, organize, make sure you ain't missing nothing before you take off on a big journey. That's what's taking place. That's what Ezra's doing here, right? And as he reviews his list of people, as he reviews his ministry team, what does he find? He finds out his team is lacking some of the leaders that he needs, specifically leaders from a tribe or family, the family of Levi. And they're commonly known as the Levites or Levitical priests, right? What do you do in that moment? You think about this. What do you do when you find out you don't have manpower for the job ahead? Especially if that manpower is kind of a specialty kind of a manpower, not a general you know, you've got generalists who kind of like can oversee big categories, at times dive into a specialty category, but you've got your generalists like Ezra. But then in, in a mission or in a, in a ministry or in a team, even if you think about it in a military sense, you, you're going to have special teams, right? The Levites would have made up a special team under Ezra's leadership. What do you do when you find out that you're lacking that kind of specialty manpower? Levites, um, we could spend a, lot, a long time this morning um, thinking about what they did, but a, a real basic overview of what the Levites would have been responsible for, um, they kind of had a special calling, um, not, not any more special than anybody else. Um, just, just a specific type of responsibility, a specific type of expectation in the ministry of God's house, the temple. You could say the church, right? 
Um, that specific calling, that specific kind of expectation was to simply administer or administrate, organize, and make happen some of the basic behind-the-scenes tasks of keeping the temple beautiful, of uh, keeping the temple in good working order, keeping the temple protected. Um, And they also, um, there was a division of the Levitical priests that administered the music ministry of the temple. So if you've been in a church body at all for very long, you, you can kind of hear and see where we kind of try to take some of our similar um, ministry structures from the scriptures as much as we can. Um, the question still remains, if you're Ezra and you're sitting there, what do you do when you find that you're lacking a specific kind of leader for the mission ahead, right? What do you do at that point? Well, Ezra, the text tells us, basically does what any responsible leader should do or would do. After realizing that he's got a leadership shortage, um, he doesn't sit on his thumbs waiting for God to just send the right leaders along. Doesn't take that kind of passive approach. He also doesn't sit in the corner and pout about that shortage, right? Um, Kind of that cynical approach. Um, He also doesn't run around frantically, right? Like just trying to get people on the bus, trying to find the leaders that he needs to do what needs to be done. He doesn't think that it revolves around him necessarily. So he's not just frantically getting after things just to look busy. Um, What does he do? He looks to the current team that he has, right? He looks within the people that he's already got sitting beside that river with him, and he locates a team from within that team. He assembles a team, the text tells us, of leading men, a certain kind of men, men who will lead. Men of insight is another word. So that that would be like men of wisdom who can teach. If you were to do some study on what they're talking about, there's a certain part of the Levitical priesthood that would have memorized lots of scriptures, helped to even write some of the scriptures and keep them written down. Um, There's kind of a division in there of those kinds of men. That would have been these kinds of men, these men of insight who knew God's word well. And then when they spoke to the Levites... I'm getting my stories mixed up because these weren't Levites. (laughs) These were men of insight who probably understood God's word and be able to explain to the Levites why they needed to get off their butts and get on the team. Is that clear? I kind of jacked that up in my explanation there for a moment. So he assembles this team, leading men, men of insights, and, and he sends them to the leader of the Levites. His name is Ido. I don't know what parents named their kid Ido, but his name was Ido. Um, I think there could be jokes made. His name is Ido. And so Ezra sends these uh, leading men, these men of insight, to Ido, who is the leader of the Levites. Some scholars' commentaries say that they believe that Ido was probably similar to Um, maybe like a superintendent of a college or the dean of a college, and that in that place, um, these Levites that were there were studying God's word deeply. Um, That's what some scholars think could uh, be the story. At any rate, Ezra sends these leading men, these men of insight, men who knew God's word, and he sent them to Ido with a very persuasive recruiting letter. Now, 
because I love to make Italian jokes, and because I'm Italian, I'm sure that it sounds something like, let me make you an offer you can't refuse. And I'm sure that they had a kitten that they pet. I'm kidding. It's just what I see in my head. They get there with a very persuasive recruiting letter. The contents of that letter are summed up in our text in verse 17. They're summed up in these words. Send us ministers for the house of our God. That's the summary. Send us ministers for the house of our God. One commentary notes that Ezra sent the most significant men in his group beside the river, as well as these two men of insight, not to coerce the Levites into joining the team, but to remind them of their God-ordained calling and responsibility to serve as ministers in the newly reformed community in Jerusalem. Sometimes I think we read things like this, uh, and it's easy to disconnect. When you think about it, easy to disconnect uh, from the text and from what's happening here if you're not in maybe vocational ministry, right? If you're not the guy on the stage kind of drawing a wage to do ministry as the professional Christian, it's easy to disconnect from the text, um, it sounds like when you're reading the text and you're thinking about it, it's easy, I think, for us, those of us who are not in vocational ministry, um, to, 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 to read it like somehow Ezra's trying to recruit some professional ministers, right? Like some top-level Christians, that kind of feeling. There's this disconnect. Um, and I think that, uh, that that's easy for us to disconnect in those moments. Easy, I think, to miss the bigger biblical picture that the reality is, and from the beginning of time until Jesus comes back, God has called every believer, every believer, to be ministers for the house of God. Well, when you review texts like Ephesians chapter 4, or Romans chapter 12, or 1 Corinthians chapter 12, these passages speak of many members, one body, with various gifts that are to do the ministry. And in fact, your, your pastors, elders, and, and deacon types are meant to equip that body of many members, many gifts, to do the work of the ministry so that we might all grow in spiritual maturity. So I think it's easy for us to kind of forget that whole context within the scriptures when it comes to this, con when it comes to this idea of recruiting some leaders that are missing. So think about this. I want you to imagine with me for a moment what the world would look like if more Christians could catch the vision. You've heard me say vision is not taught, it's caught. Uh, you've probably also heard me say I don't think I do a very good job of pitching the vision. <laughs> I do better about teaching the vision, points one through five on the screen, right? So I'm just linear. It's not that I'd, my wife corrected me later after she heard me say that. I think last week or the week before, and she was like, you should not do that to yourself. That's not true. Um, I still am better, I think, at the linear rather than the throwing, catching. What would it be like if Christians caught that vision 
for every believer being a called and gifted minister for the house of God. Imagine what a community like Hastings here, south of the tracks, first piece of artwork in terms of catching the vision, first piece of artwork on our wall out there when you come in, and it's an image of Hastings south of the tracks. There's some stats. Um, 10,000 people south of the tracks. That's a lot of people. And you don't have to travel 1,000 miles to serve and to love those people outside these walls, right? What would it look like if uh, in Hastings, south of the tracks, in that community of 10,000 people, if more than 50% of the names, I'm just dreaming, right? If we were positioned in a place where more than 50% of the names on our church attendee and member list begin to consistently show up, Um, to some of the basic, you know, weekly gatherings of the church family, or began to serve consistently, began to serve faithfully as ministry leaders in different areas. What would that kind of consistent commitment, what would that picture of a church family produce in a neighborhood such as this, or in the world for that matter? Wouldn't a, if you had a fully engaged church family, when I say fully engaged church family, I want you to think about this in terms of your own context, okay? Your own family. You grew up in a family, or you have a family, like you have a wife, kid, spouse, whatever, right? Um, In your family, whether it's a family of two or a family of 20, You do a, a family gathering, right? You do a potluck or something like that on Christmas. And if you were to look around your family home, your space, and let's say uh, out of the 20 people in the room, five of those folks were really engaged, what would that look like? Well, they'd be doing things like grabbing the food out of the oven, maybe taking the trash out, be setting the table, be answering the door, greeting people who walk in, Right? There's things that are being done in that family, in that gathering. If only five out of the 20 were doing so, how much of the hard work is being placed on five rather than the entire 20? Likewise, if you were to change those stats, you were to move it up to 50%. So this is the way I'm thinking as I look at the text. You also think about it as if you put yourself in different shoes in that story, in that illustration. Does anybody here, not by showing hands, have that family member that uh, shows up to the family gatherings, but they don't do the dishes, right? Um, or they, they, they don't take the trash out. Or after eating the meal, they just leave their plate on the table filthy and then leave. That's really hard, right? Everybody, you kind of feel that? And maybe some of you are like, oh shoot, I think I'm that person. <laughs> That's not my intention. Uh, my intention is to really unpack what this, how this kind of translates across to who we are um, and to what we're doing, right? Again, come back to the vision of this neighborhood around us, right? Uh, the vision that Ezra had was a thousand miles away in Jerusalem. Our vision is Hastings south of the tracks, 10,000 people. Doesn't mean we're not going to reach people in Grand Island or Blue Hill or... Our first initial focus is right here, though. 
How refreshing would it be for this community around us to see what kind of what I'm painting the picture of? What, what, since we're the well, right, where you draw water, um, although I will say we have been mistaken for a bar a few times, and that's always been fun too. I don't know why folks would think that a bar is named the well. Well, maybe I do get it. Okay. We're called the well, where you would draw fresh water. Imagine what kind of a really tasty, cold, fresh drink of water it would be to the community right here if they saw just a fully engaged church family. Especially when we're living in a world that is full of divorce. Right? Full of brokenness, war, poverty, division, polarization, neglect, broken relationships. That's, a, that's the broken world we're living in. And at a church that was a fully engaged without having some Levites that are just, I, don't, I think, living in comfort um, over with Ido rather than taking off on the mission with Ezra. If, if that's what the church looked like today, wouldn't that, wouldn't that kind of sacrificial living be a fresh drink of water? That's my point. I imagine, I imagine Ezra probably had some of the same dreams, right? Probably maybe had some of the same similar thoughts. In his own context, obviously, they didn't have TVs and so on and so forth then. But I imagine as Ezra is sitting down on the edge of that bank and he's working through his list. And he's dreaming about what it's going to be like to... See, this fully restored temple and this, this fully reformed community of people who are living by God's word together. I can imagine the disappointment that Ezra might have felt sitting on that bank. Some of the sadness he might have felt. Frustration, maybe. When he realized that the Levites had not yet joined the team. When we read this about the Levites, we have to remember that it's not like the Levites were just some fringe group of people, some other part of the family that was so barely connected that it's easy to forget about them. You know, you got like your second and third and fourth cousins, cousins, cousins. It's not quite like that. Israel, in terms of the 12 families, along with the Levites, they were a tight-knit community. Um even if they lived geographically further from each other. So when he reads this, I don't think he's reading that loss of those leaders um, flippantly. I think when he reads it, there had to have been some disappointment in him. Realized they hadn't joined the team. True to his character, Ezra leads forward, though. Ezra doesn't, again, sit on in the corner and pout, or any of those things. Ezra just leads forward. And I think Ezra is kind of a man who has some strategic visionary skill, or he's able to see a picture. And at the same time, he's able to also see some strategic steps to get to that picture. So Ezra, I think, leads forward in that way. And as he's doing it, he's trusting God with the results, right? Which is really important for all of us, I think. When we stop trusting God for the results in our lives, whether it be personal or in our family, in our church, in our community, when we stop trusting God for the results, then we kind of want to put ourselves in God's seat and try to control outcomes. So it's 
It's, it's humbling, it's sanctifying, it's good. Oftentimes, for me, and maybe for you, to be reminded that <laughs> I don't know all things, only God does. I can't be everywhere all at once, only God can be. I can't control everything, only God can. And therefore I can give myself a break. Um, while still working hard. Because the results are his. At the end of the day, what does God do in this story? He provides 250 more leaders, which is pretty phenomenal. Can you imagine? I mean, we're not 1,500, right? But I don't know what the uh, 250 of a, of a thousand is a quarter, right? I look around the room here. I say there's 50, 60. I'll push it. I'll, I'll do the good Baptist counting. We'll say 60. 60 in the room. What's a quarter of 60? Somebody give me that number. 15. Can you imagine what it would feel like right now if those doors swung open and 15 people came tromping in here and sat down? They're like, hey, we're ready to work. 15 people. That's a, that can put some energy into some things. That's basically what happens here. God gives them a quarter of their size more. No, that's not right either. <laughs> I'm doing the math wrong. So this is why I don't do my wife's job. Because there weren't 1,000 people. There, weren't th there was 1,500 people, right? So, yeah, anyways, the point still stands. <laughs> my math sucks, but the point still stands. That's what that day was like. God provided that many people right into the team. It says move forward. How do you apply this? Next question. What do we need to believe about God? What would God call us to do with this new information? Again, when we read this, what we see is God is providing extravagantly for the mission ahead, right? Ezra has labored faithfully. He didn't give up in the face of the short supply. And I think that we may never fully understand why the Levites did not initially join the team until so late in the story. Um, but we do know this, we do know that the Levites responded to their brothers. When their brothers reminded them of their calling and their responsibility to be ministers in the house of God, they responded. And they responded positively, they responded in obedience to the Lord. And sometimes, I think all it takes is for the simple, faithful words of another human being along with the prompting of the Holy Spirit to get your head and your heart in the game. Or, that's if your head and your heart haven't been in the game, or to keep your head and your heart in the game when it comes to serving the Lord. I had one of these moments uh, recently with one of my daughters. Um, there's always that meme floating around Facebook that if you're, a, if, if you're close to a pastor, you better watch out because you become the uh, illustrations. But I had an experience like this with one of my kiddos, and I was, we were talking, and she saw that I, I looked sad, and, and she goes, well, Daddy, why do you look so sad? And I, and I just said, yeah, it's just been, a, just been some rough things. And so I lamented how difficult, how messy, how hard ministry can be sometimes. You know, because you're rubbing shoulders, all of us. If we all do ministry together, you're going to rub shoulders next to other sinners, broken people, right? And it gets messy. And Patrick Loves to call us a, a group of messy misfits, which <laughs> is good. 
That was the conversation I was having with my daughter, and uh, <laughs> she's just listening, kind of nodding her head, and she just looks at me and she goes, Dad, it's for a good reason. It's for a good reason. Sometimes it's easy to forget that. Imagine Ezra on the banks of that river, reading through his list, realizing there's not any Levites in his crew. I imagine somebody coming to him and saying, hey man, that's all for a good reason. And as I was thinking about that this week, the thought struck me. I, rem- I can think of somebody else saying that to their father. I can think of Jesus in eternity past as they're making the plan for him to come to suffer horrendously. Horrendously. For his enemies. And not that there would be any doubt in his father's mind. But I can hear Jesus sitting there next to his father and going, Hey, hey dads, for a good reason. Let's do this. Maybe the Levites heard that kind of a message when their brothers came to them. Maybe they heard something that sounded like, hey guys, get off your butts. <laughs> like, get out of Babylon. This place that resembles some kind of comfort for you, even though it was slavery for so long. Travel that thousand miles over all this deadly terrain. Serve in these menial tasks in Jerusalem. Leave your businesses behind. Leave your comfortable homes behind. Help reform a community of the word and beautify the temple. It's for a good reason. What was that reason? The promises all down through the centuries were this one reason. The Messiah, the Savior, Jesus, is going to sit on that throne in that beautiful temple. Let's get ready for him to come. The only reason that I can think that the Levites would ever leave the comfort of Babylon is if they actually caught a vision of the Messiah King on the throne. So in conclusion, why would anybody leave the comforts of American religion? I use that term intentionally. American religion. For me, what I mean when I say that is a nominal kind of a Christianity. It's a nominal kind of Christianity that barely commits to anything long term for my entire life. Why would anybody leave that idea that I can just come and go as I please and go wherever I want and because I'm an individual? And God speaks to me. And these are all good in some ways. But why would anybody leave that version of a Christianity for a lifestyle of messy community where people sin, hurt each other, have to forgive, and still serve? 
Why would anybody leave that nominal kind of Christianity where you can just kind of be a fly on the wall and hide out? Why would anybody leave that? Show up two hours early on Sundays to make consistent efforts to be in midweek gatherings, to serve in a nursery watching somebody else's babies or a kid's ministry to take care of somebody else's kids or to clean up a church building throughout the week when nobody can see you and you know you're picking up whatever, whoever's kids' donuts off the floor and they didn't clean it up themselves and you just get into all those thoughts, right? Because we're human. Why would anybody leave the comfort of, I can just show up, receive a, some kind of a product and go back home to my life? Why would anybody leave that idea, that American religion, to mow the church lawn when nobody else is looking? Spend a few hours doing that or go to outreach events and help all day long and sweat like crazy, right? Back in the days when we did set up and tear down, what would call people to get up early in the morning, come unload a trailer into a YMCA and after the church gathering, after you had this group of people that would just show up for the event and they'd all bail right afterwards and the rest of us are like, time to tear down, put it all away and go home and sleep, right? Plus you're working a full-time job. Like why would anybody leave this idea of this nominal, comfortable Christianity to do something such as we're trying to do here in Hastings South of the Tracks. Why would anybody take that thousand mile journey like the Levites? The only good reason that I can come up with that I think is going to get your head in the game and your heart in the game if it hasn't been. The only good reason that I can think of that's going to keep your head and your heart in the game when the going gets tougher than tough is if your sacrifice and your serving and your being a part of that team means more than just the menial tasks you get the privilege of doing. The only reason is if your sacrifice and your serving will mean that a better king with a better letter gets seated on the throne of other people's hearts. Father, pray as we close that you would continue to speak to us. Draw us to the foot of your cross. Trust you to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.